verses 6 through 15. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we unpack your word that you speak to our hearts, that your Holy Spirit works within each of us, comforting where we need to be comforting, convicting where we need to be convicted. We pray, Father, that the words which are of your Holy Spirit come to the fore and the words which are dross fall away. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I, um, last November, November the 1st, became an American citizen. And in all senses of the word, I probably make a pretty lousy American culturally. I like cricket, not baseball. I have a funny accent for an American. I have a birth certificate, which is not of this country. If there is a competition between Australia and the United States at the Olympics, I barrack for the Australian team. Culturally, I'm not really a very good uh, American, and I often wonder that people are going to come up to me and pick these things up, pick up my birth certificate, pick up my barracking for the Australian team, make note of my accent, call out the fact that I understand all the rules of cricket and none of the rules of baseball, wave them in my face and say, you are not a real American, you're a fake, you're a fraud. But then I remember when I became an American, they gave me a fool's cap piece of paper with a nice seal on it, which said, you are an American because you have sweared allegiance to the Constitution and the laws of this country. It is not cultural. It doesn't matter what my accent is, what sport I follow, what language I speak, or my place of birth. I am a naturalized American because the, the authority of this country says that I am, and I have a certificate which proves it. And now I have to work out what it means to live, to walk as an American. And it doesn't mean that I have to learn to speak with an American accent. It doesn't mean I have to barrack for 
uh, the Americans at the Olympics. It does not mean that I need to learn the rules of baseball instead of cricket. And it certainly doesn't mean I need to forge an American birth certificate. Walking as an American means holding that allegiance to the Constitution and laws of that country, and that's all it means. In this passage, we saw Paul writing in the Colossians to the Colossians, saying that they should live, or in fact, that word in the Greek is walk, you should continue to live your lives in Christ. You should continue to walk in Christ. And he gives us four really powerful and strong metaphors uh, in verses 6 and 7 and what it means to walk in, to live in, to walk in Christ. The first metaphor is being rooted, an agricultural metaphor, this idea that when we walk in Christ, we, our, we, we dig deep, that our roots are infused into Christ. And what does that mean? That means that we listen to Scripture and to the Holy Spirit. We are grounded in the Word of God and we are grounded in the Word of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. And the deeper those roots grow, the further into Scripture, the further the Holy Spirit uh, sucks that down and we, and we find our strength and our grounding in Christ, the more we walk, but the deeper, the, the more profound our walk. The second metaphor moves from agriculture to build. You are built up, rooted and built up in Christ. And this is an architectural metaphor. And whilst as we walk and live, we often feel like our experience might be that Christ, first of all, builds a hut and comes and bulldozes it down and our life gets shocked. And then he builds a little bungalow, then he knocks that down, then a terrace house knocks that down. And we have this to and fro experience. That's not a good understanding of the metaphor here. We need to trust that the architecture, who we are supposed to be, is known by God, and we are built up slowly and methodically as we move in maturity to be exactly what God is creating us to be. We are built up, in a sense, to have knowledge and desire, to have values and a heart after God. Now, that's not knowledge of esoteric, wild, peculiar theological principles. That's a knowledge of the values of God. And that is a heart which desires to live out those values. So we are built up as we walk, as our roots sink deep into Scripture and we are informed by the work of the Holy Spirit. We are matured and we have a, a better understanding of what the values of God are. That's the knowledge which is important. And we have a heart which desires to see those values lived out. The next metaphor that's used is the word strengthen. Strengthen in the faith as you were taught. This word strengthen is actually a legal case. There's a legal idea of this idea of being strengthened. And what it's saying is that there, as you walk in the faith, you have a stronger sense of the legal case. You understand that the covenant strength that makes you part of the family, that adopts you as a child of God, is more powerful every day you walk. And it's, not, it's not that it becomes more powerful, but you are strengthened in the sense that that legal justification applies to you. And all of that is completed with this idea of overflow, a culinary image, overflow of gratitude. And that's like the big table, 
that overflows with food, or the pot that boils over because there's so much of it. So we see then we are agriculturally rooted in Scripture with the work of the Holy Spirit. We are built up architecturally according to the blueprint that Christ has for us into maturity, knowing his values and desiring to see those values lived out. And we are strengthened through that process to understand that the covenant makes us his child and that we are in that covenant and that there is nothing that can take us away from that. And the result of that is that we overflow in gratitude because we are grounded, we are built up, and we are strengthened in what it means to walk in Christ. And if that was all that Paul had to say, and if it was that easy, the letter to the Colossians would be very short. But he goes on in verse 8 to say, but it's not always that simple. It's not always that easy. He goes on to say, see to it that no one takes you captive. Now that word captive there has a very strong connotation. It's like when someone comes and kidnaps you or takes you and puts you into the slave trade. It's not like capture the flag. It's like you are literally taken out of one family or one context and you are held ransom. You are made a slave with another. And you, it says here, you do not be taken captive by human traditions and spiritual forces. And it says, it's, be, it's clear from this that Paul is saying that human traditions and spiritual forces are capable of coming to us in our grounded, rooted, scriptural spirit depth like a whirlwind and tossing us around and making us feel like we're not as grounded as we should be. Or they come to the building like an earthquake and they shake us at our foundations and they give us the feeling that we are not as mature or as built up or that the plan or the blueprint isn't strong enough to withstand the earthquake that we're experiencing. Or perhaps just when we were getting used to the idea that we are grounded as children in the covenant of God, someone comes up with this quirky little legal trick at the last minute that, that means that we are no longer able to stand righteous before God and we feel condemned by our sin and we no longer feel like we are children in the covenant. And so we replace our overflowing gratitude with resentment or with fear or with contempt. And, and Paul is saying that these, that these uh, human traditions and elemental forces can come and do that to us. And these forces apply to all cultures. I would say they apply to both the society at large and also to the church specifically. Uh, many, many examples exist in our culture of these philosophies or these ideas. One or two that I think are very powerful to us uh, that can often... Uh, feel like a whirlwind or an earthquake or a nasty legal trick that can replace gratitude with fear and resentment is materialism. And if you're a kid, you feel like your whole world is going to be okay if you're wearing that right pair of sneakers or you've got the most modern iPhone or if you're wearing the right sweatshirt or whatever the thing is which is going to give you meaning or a sense of belonging or some sort of uh, value outside of your value in Christ. Or perhaps if you're an adult, it's having the right size house or the right size car or being able to go on the right sort of vacation or whatever it is. You say, I can find my joy through materialism, not through who I am and what I am in Christ. 
So that is one type of philosophy which I think can come like a whirlwind, like an earthquake, like a nasty legal trick and derail us from what it means to experience the fullness of walking in Christ. Another type of philosophy which I think is very powerful today is that of security. All different sites of security out there. The security of being part of the right friend group if we're in school. Perhaps it's the security of having the 401k being right where you think it should be for retirement. Or perhaps it's the security, emotional security, of not being faithful to God and not, not standing up to the values and the desires that he has put in your heart in the workplace because you're afraid you might lose your job. Or perhaps it's the need, the obligation, the, 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 the oppression that you put on someone else when you say to them, you're the only person that can make me happy. It's you, not Christ. And so you latch on and try to take your security from those relationships, causing harm to yourself and to others. Whatever the way you try to access that philosophy, you can see how not being grounded in Christ, not walking in Christ, can create the fear, the resentment, the bitterness, the contempt. But it happens also in the church. There's a tendency in the church, especially in Presbyterian circles, to think that you need to have it all together intellectually, that you need to know what prelapsarianism is, what dispensationalism is, naming all of the words out left and right, and you're a better Christian if you know all of those theological, intellectual Christian terms. Or perhaps on the other flip side, have you had enough of an experience of the Spirit? Have you been slain in the Spirit? Have you spoken in tongues? Is it an experiential worship that gives you your meaning or your place in the church? So these ideas of spiritual or human traditions that we build up and say, these are the places where I get my meaning outside of the fullness that I find in Christ. These ideologies, these, ideologies, these spiritualities, these theologies, these philosophies, these sciences, these reasons, these artistic expressions, they can all get in the way of us living out the fullness of Christ. Now, the danger is not in hearing these things. It is not in understanding these things. It is not even in being interested in these things or enjoying or celebrating these things. They are all to be enjoyed and celebrated. Christianity is not and should never be an intellectual, social, aesthetic, cultural ghetto. There's a powerful concept in the Old Testament of the tabernacle, the place of worship being built with Egyptian gold. When the Hebrews were in Egypt, God said to them, go and get the gold from the Egyptian families around you and bring it with you. And when they built the place of worship, they used Egyptian gold to build the tabernacle. Of course, the uh, thought that we might have is, why would you use that foreign, why would you use that secular gold to build the tabernacle? Because there is no secular sacred device. Gold is gold wherever you get it from. The problem is being captive, which is subservient to which. You see, ideologies, spiritualities, theologies, philosophies, science, reason, artistic expression, the good in all of those is like a moon which reflects the light of the sun. Christ 
God is in all of those things. And when we find him and understand them through the lens of being in the fullness of Christ, those things being great value. Artistic expression, music, different types of philosophies, our understanding of theology, different ideologies about economies and how we engage in this world as we were called to do, when we understand that those things are all subject to and experienced through and looked at uh, using the lens of the fullness of Christ, when they are subservient to that, then we live out the fullness of Christ. Now, to give you one example of that, which is very powerful, recently at an ordination exam where Kyle, the uh, Pastor Kyle from this church was ordained. He was cross-examined quite extensively about his relationship as a counsellor to how the light of Christ, the fullness of Christ, applied to that context. And there are two pieces to that, right? There's the gross piece. There's the idea that you can't, if you're depressed, then you can't be a good Christian. If you're anxious, you can't be a good Christian. And he was quickly able to dispel that saying that, you know, sometimes depression and anxiety come out of sinfulness, but sometimes they're a result of brokenness, which is, of course, a secondary effect of the sin in the world, but not the responsibility of the person who's depressed or anxious. But he then went on to explain a subtle difference, that as someone who struggles with depression or anxiety, and as a body who need to come along people who struggle with depression and anxiety, there is a call to be faithful in that. There's a call to be faithful in how you deal with your depression and your anxiety. And there is a call on the flip side for those who come alongside to do that with love and compassion and with patience. And he was able to explain that relationship really well. So it's not that there is no place for psychiatric medication or for counseling theories that came like Egyptian gold from secular contexts. But within the lens of Christ, we can apply that Egyptian goal alongside what it does it mean to be faithful, to walk with, and to walk in the brokenness. So we have this idea then that we need to walk in Christ and we cannot become captives. We cannot be kidnapped. We cannot become slaves to human traditions and spiritual forces. And it goes on in verses 9 and 10 to explain why that is. There are three big ideas running through this passage. Let me read 9 and 10 first. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been born into fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. And it's a very short couple of sentences, but it makes a very big argument. First piece of the argument is God is in Christ. Christ is God. Jesus the man is God. And sometimes we have this strange idea of the Trinity that it's a pie with three pieces and if you took out one piece of the pie there'd still be two left and we'd have I guess a, du a duality God. But that's not a really bad idea of the Trinity. God cannot be divided up like a piece of pie and God is fully in Christ and without Christ there is no God. And so the first piece of this is that God is Christ and Christ is God. Then it goes on to say that we are in Christ and that means that our fullness is experienced through Christ and that makes sense because God is uh, the source of everything and so 
if Christ is in us, we have access to that fullness. And he's talking there about the fullness of salvation. That means our escape from our deliverance from the judgment that we rightly deserve, but also our sanctification, a big fancy word that means our refining, our making more Christ-like, our continued rootedness, building upness, understanding of the legal strength, that overflow of thankfulness, that piece as well, that sanctifying or refining piece, and finally that glorification. And then that word glorification, it always feels so sanitized to me. Like I'm sitting on a harp because oh, on a cloud because I'm fully glorified playing a harp. But that's not what it means. Glorified means that I am purified in a sense to thrive, that I am made significant in my ability to participate fully in the kingdom of God, in all of its material and physical and spiritual glory. And so far from being sanitized, it's actually incredibly invigorating and exciting and participatory and calling to me. So that fullness, we are in Christ. But then the last piece is also really important, Christ over all, all authority. Christ has authority over all, which of course he does if he is the creator of all things. But then let's look at him. He is, in fact, the master gardener. He is the one who tends to those roots, who provides the spiritual nurture, who gets us engaged in the scripture. He is, in fact, the master builder, the one that builds us to maturity, the one that instills those values, values, the ones that changes our heart's desires. He is the master lawyer, the one who constantly reminds us, not just uh, of his uh, forensic justification, another fancy word for his substitution, but constantly reminds how much he loved us to do that, and that his death fully meets uh, God's need for justice on the cross so that we can stand before him. And he is ultimately the master chef the one who prepares the banquet that overflows so that we can experience that level of gratitude. And I ask you this question, what do you want to be? What, do you, what would you prefer? Would you, if you, were, if you were needing to thrive as a plant, would you want a whole lot of books and would you want to try to work out on your own how to do that or would you want to know the master gardener? If you were needing to build yourself up to what you needed to be, if you were needed to develop to maturity, if you were going to build a big house and you had a blueprint and, an, and a plan, what would you want? Would you want a whole lot of books to try to work out how to do it yourself or would you want to know a master architect? And if you need good legal defense, what do you want? Do you want a law library so you can read all those books? Do you want to try to do this on your own? Do you want to build your garden? Do you want to build your... Uh, house? Do you want to build your legal case? Do you want to fill that pot on your own, building your own kingdom? Or do you want to know a master gardener, a master builder, a master lawyer, a master chef? And Christ is all of those things, and we experience the fullness through that. So in verses 9 and 10, he uses that idea of God in Christ. Jesus is fully God. Where in Christ in our fullness, so we experience our salvation, our sanctification, our glorification in Christ. And Christ has authority over all. He is, in fact, the master gardener, builder, lawyer, and chef. 
And then on verse 11, he goes on to use or make the same point in a slightly different way. He talks, first of all, in Old Testament language about being in Christ because we're circumcised. And of course, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we looked at circumcision and we understood that circumcision is a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It was a sign that you were one of the people of God and it was done by cutting because you cut a covenant. But the circumcision that he's talking about here, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. He's talking about the circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit. It is, and it says, in Christ you were circumcised, in, with the Spirit of Christ, with the Holy Spirit, but also by Christ. His work, not ours. And then he moves to the New Testament metaphor to explain how that is done. And we have said all through this series that when Christ talks about baptism, his baptism, he is talking about his death and his resurrection. How is this circumcision done? How is this grafting into the people, the covenant community done? How is this salvation, sanctification and glorification done? It is done through the death and resurrection of Christ on the cross. And in verses 12, we see that having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And so we move to this metaphor, this New Testament metaphor of baptism. Our baptism connects us to his death and resurrection. And our baptism here through this font reminds us of that connection. His work, our faith, and it makes it very clear here, through your faith in the working of God, not in the working of us, in the faith of the master gardener, the master builder, the master lawyer, and the master chef, not in our own faith. We are brought in through his baptism. And goes on in verses 13 to the end of the passage that we read, saying that we should walk in Christ because God is in Christ. Christ is God. We are in Christ, and Christ has authority over all. We should not be captives to lesser things. We should not doubt our adoption or our deliverance. But then it goes on in verse 14 to say, Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And that's a reference to the way they used to deal with debt at that time. If you had a debt notice that you owed someone, they would literally take it into the public square and in the middle of the square, they would nail it up and they would say, look at the debt you owe. And it would be shame and guilt and obligation and pressure and social condemnation that all came because... Someone was waving in your face the fact that you owed them a debt. And what it's saying here is that Satan or Satan's minions or the dark voices within our head will often come and wave in our face and say, you aren't rooted, you aren't built up, you aren't strengthened, you are not overflowing, you can't be one of the people of God. You are not good enough. You are not there. And we can see how Satan or Satan's minions or the dark voices within inside us come up to us and say that for all of these things, for things like materialism 
it's not enough, right? Christ is not enough. I've got to go and get it through my sneakers or my vacation or my new car. Through security, my 401k, my friend group. Through intellectualism, my understanding of the deep nuances of intellectualism. Oh, my experiential slaying in the spirit that happens on a weekly basis. And for all of those things, we're supposed to wave back at Satan, wave back at his minions, wave back at those dark faces, and we're supposed to say, remember my baptism. Remember my baptism, which brings me into relationship with Christ. Remember my baptism, which told me it was his work. Remember my baptism, which connects me to the master gardener, the master builder, the master lawyer, the master chef. As we are confronted by the legal indebtedness that we have, the ugly reality of our sin, it is so easy to despair, it's so easy to be disappointed in ourselves, it's so easy to self-condemn, it's so easy to see the ugliness and be repelled by ourselves. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to turn around and grab our baptism and wave it back in the faces of those who are accusing us and say, remember my baptism. Say it to ourselves. Do not let, do not let the human traditions or the elementary spiritual forces condemn us. And in fact, that has been the message of this series, which we're wrapping up today. We're concluding Lent, and it, uh, or the, the series leading up to Lent, we'll be going into Palm Sunday next week. And if you followed the sermon series, you'll realize that in each of those uh, sermons, we said, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. If you doubt your deliverance from judgment, remember your baptism. If you doubt your place in the covenant, remember your baptism, which connects you to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you doubt your calling, like Jonah did. Remember that sermon that Kyle preached? Remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. Remember the connection that it brings to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you doubt your place in the covenant community, if you doubt that you belong here, remember your baptism. If you doubt the fact that Christ is calling you to walk in all fullness, remember your baptism. Listen to your baptism and not human traditions or elementary spiritual forces. Remember your baptism. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we are connected through your baptism on the cross, your death and resurrection, and we are reminded by our baptism. Father, how beautiful it is when we see your promises at baptism services. As we remember as children, as we see children, baptized in your name, Father, and we remember that we too are baptized, that we too are heirs of your promise, that we too are children of your covenant, that we too are with you, Father, that we too know the master gardener, the master builder, the master lawyer, the master chef, that we are built up, that we are rooted that we are strengthened and that we overflow in a place of abundance because of you. 
remind us again and again and again and again of who we are. Help us to remember our baptism into your death and your resurrection, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.